All right, so we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Proverbs, and we're coming to uh, another section of, of the first chapter. We're going to wrap up chapter 1 today, looking at that uh, end section that begins there in verse 20 and goes all the way down through verse 33. But uh, by way of introduction, uh, let's just kind of get our minds centered on this idea of the, another cultural sort of reality for us, another sort of characteristic of the world that we live in and the sort of the oxygen that we breathe. I don't think that, um, I don't think that I'm exaggerating. I don't think that anybody in here, at least I, don't, I hope not, anybody in here would, would uh, find any kind of uh, disagreement with the truth that we are living in a day and time that you might characterize as um, a hypersensitive culture. Um, a little bit of a little bit of touchiness uh, that might be a little more extreme than in days past. Um, you, you, you see this playing out all over the place on the news and whatnot. Uh, college campuses are, are well known around the country for really responding to things in ways that in decades past you would never even see anything like that happening. Um, but it doesn't just center on you know college campuses, even though that becomes kind of a a fertile ground for that kind of thing. It's it's really all over the place. It's not just in uh, the unbelieving world or the secular world. It's in the life of the church. Um, this has been going on for quite some time. But you have you have sort of uh, influences that would lead people to not want to do anything to offend another. With, for example, the way that you preach or the way that you evangelize. Um, so we want to be very careful that we make people feel really, really comfortable, and we don't say anything that might sound offensive. And this has led many churches to actually adopt a whole philosophical approach that really eliminates um, actual biblical language from the teaching, particularly if it sort of confronts sin and, and talks about you know, judgment or hell or anything like that. It's just we don't want to say anything that would offend the sensibilities of people, but maybe even particular people who might not be believers. We don't want people to be offended. Um, and there's really a, a certain folly to all of this, and it's really, I think, uh, more, I don't know, uh, disconcerting when this kind of hypersensitivity and, and easily offended kind of way of thinking and living plays itself out amongst believers. It's, it's, really, um, it's really, really difficult to to see that happen, because the fact of the matter is, is that we have no shortage of guidance uh, in Scripture that teaches us, that instructs us how to disagree biblically, how to deal with conflict, how to uh, cover, have love covering a multitude of sins. I mean, there's all kinds of instruction all throughout Scripture that teaches us how to get along with one another, even when we don't agree, to not elevate our preferences to points of you know, moral conviction and then judge others by our own preferences, but to see preferences as preferences and know that there's going to be differences there. There's all kinds of instruction in Scripture about that. Um, and there's a certain folly that just becomes so evident when, when, when believers allow themselves to be co-opted by this idea of hyper, hyper, hyper sensitivity. In other words, the standard that I set for everyone else around me is that you can't do or, anything, do or say anything that I determine offends me. And in so doing, it's not that you've just done something that kind of rubs me wrong. 
It's not that you've said something that I'm a little bit offended by or taken off by. No, you've done something wicked and sinful. It, it, when, when a Christian elevates that to a level of, of judgment on the other person, it becomes a, a matter of, of really extreme folly on the part of the believer. And, and I believe that it's easy for us to inculcate what is happening in the society around us. Let me just kind of read from an article to give you an idea of, of some of this. And, and there's been some writing on this that's really interesting when you think about it from a broader sociological, sociological perspective. But in an article entitled Victimhood, Culture, and America, Beyond Honor and Dignity, and the subtitle of this is Americans Increasingly Want and Expect Adult Supervision. Listen to, this article. Listen to some excerpts from this article. In an article entitled Microaggression in Moral Cultures, the California State University Los Angeles sociologist Bradley Campbell and the West Virginia University sociologist Jason Manning identify a, quote, culture of victimhood that they, that they distinguish from the honor cultures and dignity cultures of the past. In a victimhood culture, they write, individuals and groups display high sensitivity to slight. They have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to third parties and seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. Insightfully, complementing their analysis is a new study by the St. Lawrence University economist Stephen Horowitz titled, quote, Cooperation over Coercion, the Importance of Unsupervised Childhood Play for Democracy and Liberalism. How's that for a title? Horowitz makes the case that overprotective child-rearing is undermining the ability to engage in group problem-solving and settle disputes without the intervention of outsiders, a capacity he calls a key part of the liberal order. In other words, both studies find that Americans increasingly want and expect adult supervision. Campbell and Manning begin by probing the rise of the microaggression phenomenon on university campuses. As defined by the Columbia Diversity Training Specialist, Daryl Wing Sue, microaggressions are, and here's the definition of microaggressions, microaggressions are, quote, brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial, gender, or sexual orientation in religious slights and insults to, to the target person or group commonplace, daily, verbal, regular. But if they're deemed to be offensive, then they're called microaggressions. Now get this, microaggressions include asking an Asian American where he or she was born, complimenting a Latino on speaking English English well, or asserting that America is the land of opportunity. That's, that's, That's an offensive statement. Did you know that? In general, microaggressions are seen as instances of, larger, of a larger narrative of structural inequities. Conduct is offensive because it perpetuates or increases the domination of some persons or groups by others, Campbell and Manning observe. The authors argue that people seek the moral status of victim, again, moral status of victim, in situations where social stratification is low, cultural diversity is high, and authorities are referees. These three conditions pervade the modern American university, so it is not surprising that the microaggression victimhood phenomenon is most intense in academia. 
Google Trends finds that the headlines featuring microaggression started a steep rise in 2012. As social status becomes more equal, they argue, people become more sensitive to any slights perceived as aiming to increase the level of inequality in a relationship. In addition, as cultural diversity increases, any attempts seen as trying to reduce it or diminish its importance are deemed as morally deviant, a morally deviant form of domination. As the New York University moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt has astutely observed, quote, as progress is made toward a more equal and humane society, it takes a smaller and smaller offense to trigger a high level of outrage. The goalposts shift, allowing participants to maintain a constant level of anger and constant level of perceived victimization. That's, that's the culture that we're living in. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I experienced this in, in my work where uh, parents are offended on behalf of their children when another child on the playground says something offensive to their child. So much so that they want to elevate it to a level of administrator meeting to deal with this unseemly thing that's happened, and it should never happen in a Christian school. it's, It's pervasive now. And yet, you come to this passage in Proverbs chapter 20, and it couldn't be more directly confrontational. It couldn't be more potentially directly offensive. The fact of the matter is, is that when we are faithful to the Scriptures, and when we are faithful in pursuit of wisdom, that our sensibilities in our humanness and in our fleshliness need to be assaulted. We need to be offended. We need to be confronted. And this passage of Scripture goes right at it. It goes right at it. So let's read it together. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 to 33. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This personification of wisdom takes on this, this setting of uh, basically a sermon. Wisdom is preaching a sermon in the public marketplace and going after 
folly with aggressive tone. You notice right out of the gate that there's a real huge shift in tone and in locale from where we started last week in verse 8. In verse 8, and again, this is a larger section in Proverbs of a father's instruction to a son that goes all the way through chapter 9. So we're still in this, this section of this fatherly instruction, but this represents a massive shift in tone and locale. In verse 8, remember we have this more intimate fatherly appeal. It's almost like it's a father instructing a son in a home environment where it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Here, it, it completely changes to this loud outcry in the marketplace. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Now, I want to throw out a question to you. Why do you think there is this change in tone? Or, or what do you think, maybe not necessarily why, but what do you think is the thrust if, if the first section, in, starting in verse 8, is this more intimate fatherly appeal and instruction to a son in a, in a more sort of intimate private setting, possibly in the home, what do you think is, is so important or so key about this version of communication about wisdom? This more public outcry type of tone. What do you think might be some implications for that or some, some important reasons for that kind of change in tone? Anybody have any thoughts? Good. Good. I think that's probably one big reason. Yeah, the broader application. What else? Seems like a bit of preparation to go out into the world. Okay. Here's your instructions from your parents, and then when you go out in the marketplace, it's going to hit you hard and loud. Good. That's good. What else? Anything else? I mean, I think these hit it, hit it well. Um, I think that, you know, just to dovetail on what's already been said, this, this is really highlighting the importance of wisdom, the priority of wisdom, the relevance of wisdom, the applicability of wisdom, the need for wisdom. It, it's pervasive, right? It's what you guys are saying. It's pervasive. So if you're instructing your children in the home, it's not just something that applies in the home, right? This is preparation for them to be out in the marketplace. That the call for wisdom is a call that is ubiquitous. The application or the need of the application of wisdom is a practical application. It has implications for how people conduct their affairs in the market, in the public square. This setting is, it, it encompasses uh, commerce. It encompasses sort of political discourse. It encompasses um, civic interaction and just general community affairs. It, it encompasses that whole sphere of public life in a society. And so the, the, the contrast here, I think, is really a wonderful one for us because it, it, it forces the point in verse 8, and we looked at that whole section, of the priority, the primacy of parents passing wisdom on to the next generation. But this expands the call to wisdom, the importance of wisdom, out to say, 
this is important for society as a whole. This, this application of wisdom, the place of wisdom, the importance of wisdom, is what is best, is what is good, is what is right for the entire culture, for the entire society. And you'll notice that the call or the cry, it's, it's in the face of, it's over above the, the noise of the market, the noise of what's happening in the streets. She raises her voice. She cries out in the, in the, in the, in the noise of the culture, in the noise and the sounds and the, the day-to-day sort of voices that we have to consume and think about and ponder. Wisdom is crying aloud in the midst of that. It's calling to everyone Heed my counsel. It's a. And the question is, as I read it, wisdom is crying out against those that are mockers. And who are the mockers, and what are they mocking? Yeah, I mean, there is the, there is a rebuke. There's definitely a rebuke there. What are the mockers mocking? They're mocking wisdom. They're scoffing God. Truth. That's right. That's right. God is truth. That's right. And that's what we see is a rebellion against the truth of God. That's right. That's right. The truth is just relative. That's right. You make it up as you go along. Einstein said that. Everything is relative. That's right. I, I don't know science very well. I'm not even going to get into that. I just, I, I don't, I don't want to, I'll get really in, in over my head. But no, you're right. I mean, this is, this is an, a, a call for truth. For objective, transcendent truth, God's truth, into the marketplace. So this this tone uh, is an important shift. It's an important thing to note. It's, it has important implications for us when we think about the application of wisdom, the importance of wisdom, and what wisdom calls us to. Now you'll notice also as the as this section moved on moves on, you have these two distinct questions that are posed in verse twenty two. There's two questions that are posed, but then there's only one right answer. The questions are different, and the, per, the people who are questioned are different, but there's one right answer that we see in verse 23. So let's look at the questions. In verse 22, the first part, it says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? This, this is, a, this is a, a more direct appeal, directly addressing the simple ones. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? So it's very direct. And it includes a subtle rebuke. In other words, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a rebuke, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have as harsh a tone as the second question. And it's this question to the simple ones. And remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago because the, the simple are identified as one of the beneficiaries of wisdom. That, that wisdom makes wise the simple. And we identified the simple as those who are naive, those who are gullible, those who are easily misled, those who are easily led astray. See, in my, the margin in my NIV says the Hebrew word rendered simple in Proverbs generally denotes one without moral direction and inclined to evil. Yeah, so, but the, the other ways of looking at it is someone who is, this is about youth, it's really the focus is often on youth in this case, and the transition from the folly of youth to the folly of scoffing is where it's headed, to rejecting truth. And so the simple is someone who is easily led into evil. Right, but this would suggest something stronger than naivete. Um, 
I mean, it might, but there's, I mean, I've, I've studied the word too, and there's more nuance to it than just that. Well, wisdom is the application, the proper application of knowledge. Right. And what these verses are saying is people today are rejecting knowledge. So how can they be wise if they reject the basis from which knowledge uh, wisdom comes. But the the implication here, though, is with the simple. There's there, there's a there's an element of of not just um, necessarily overt rejection of wisdom and truth. and truth, but a lack of knowledge. In other words, there's this love of immaturity. There's this holding on to just being naive, and you see that. I mean, I, I see that routinely. There's people who cling to immaturity. They cling to simple ways of thinking and simple ways of viewing life and viewing priorities and making decisions about what's important. You see that not only outside the church, but in the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. This applies across the board. And, and, you, and you have this, and in fact, the, the Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's, this, there's this, this need for those who are immature and young to set aside their immaturity as they grow. There's a tendency for us as sinful people to cling to immaturity, to hold on to immature ways of thinking and immature ways of, of living, and even to sort of act like this is another thing that leads to this idea of, of every, you know, being a victim because we, we act like we don't know any better. We use excuses that we don't know any better. And, and wisdom is saying, you're loving, you're holding on to, you're grasping at staying naive, staying simple, staying gullible, staying unwise. You're, you're, you're holding on to it. And then there's this more harsh rebuke, and it's a more general rebuke to the scoffers. So this is, a, this is distinguished, this, this raises the level of the rejection, the overt rejection of truth, the overt rejection of wisdom to that of scoffing. It says, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So rather than just being um, clinging to immaturity, rather than just holding on to this naive way of viewing the world and, and seeing things, I mean, the, I think that probably the for the simple, you know, you have these, um, these derisive sort of uh, descriptions of um, people who, um, you know, that, that they, especially on social media, people that are actively, you know, all the time, they're responding in comment threads on posts on Facebook, and, you know, they're just, they're really bold and brave and, and lashing out their opinions on social media from behind, you know, a computer and a keyboard, and, and there are people that would kind of make a, sort of a, a stereotypical um, profile of that kind of person as someone who, you know, is in their pajamas in their, in their parents' basement just firing off, you know, these immature, trite ways of thinking, right? It's, a, it's like it's a, it's a form of derision of, of people who just won't, won't grow up. They, they won't, as the Apostle Paul says, they won't set aside childish things and become a man. And so that's the, that's the naive, but the scoffer is someone who who actually hates knowledge. <clears throat> they delight in their scoffing, and they hate knowledge. So this is a much more overt rejection of wisdom and truth. Uh, 
from a, a commentator, this, this term scoffer, it's a word that in, in English can mean one who mocks, ridicules, or scorns the belief of another. In Hebrew, the word translated scoffer or mocker can also mean ambassador. So a scoffer is one who not only disagrees with an idea, but he also considers himself an ambassador for the opposing idea. He cannot rest until he has demonstrated the foolishness of any idea not his own. A scoffer voices his disagreement, ridicules all who stand against him, and actively recruits others to join his side. You ever run into anybody like that? In the Bible, scoffers are those who choose to disbelieve disbelieve God and His Word. They say in their hearts there is no God and make it their ambition to ridicule those who follow God. I always have thought this about those who are militant atheists. I mean, if you were really just just an atheist, you just didn't believe, why would you care? Like, why do you have to convince everyone else that you also must be an atheist? This militant atheism that pervades our culture too it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It seems like if you were just an atheist, you'd just kind of go on your business and not really care. But that's, that's, that's the, the heart and mind of a scoffer. It's not enough for them to disagree. They, they're an ambassador for their own way. Oh, man, has he ever. That's right. That's right. It's really a disaster in... in in our country in particular. So you have these two questions. One is, okay, the simple, the gullible, the naive. How long are you going to just love being immature? And to the scoffer, it's more of a general question and rebuke. How long are these scoffers going to relish in their scoffing and hate knowledge? Not just ignore it, not just think it's unimportant, but actually openly, vitriolically, aggressively hate knowledge. How long? How long? There's one right answer. There's one right response, and that's in verse 23. To both of these categories of folly, both of these types of foolishness, in verse 23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So the answer is the same for both. They're, they're both folly. They're both foolishness. And there is, yes, definitely a rejection in some way or to some degree, a rejection of instruction, a rejection of counsel, a rejection of truth. It's just different, different shades of it. One's more overt and aggressive. One's more, if you will, passive and just naive and simple, simple-minded. But both are called to turn at my reproof. In other words, to the simple, stop loving being simple. Grow up. Pursue wisdom. Recognize it's calling out to you in the streets. And to the scoffer, turn from your scoffing. Be rebuked. Receive this rebuke. And then the promise is, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Now, there's this... There's this equating here of the spirit of wisdom and the words of wisdom. Someone tell me what you think that that might be about. 
It says, I'll pour out my spirit to you. This is wisdom personified, wisdom speaking. I'll pour out my spirit to you, and I will make my words known to you. Why do you think those two ideas or concepts are equated in this this blessing of responding to reproof and responding to wise counsel? So the word, the word, it's like it's like the it's the the doctrine of inspiration. It's that the 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 words are important, as is the spirit who inspired those words. I mean, it's not one or the other; it's both and. And I like the way that this brings that into symmetry and balance here. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> there are those who would equate wisdom with some type of secret knowledge or special sort of you know messages from on high, or, or, or you just sort of arrive at this place of transcendent wisdom, and it's too ethereal. It's, it's, it's overly or excessively spiritualized. And so this brings that into balance, that, that there is this, there's this focus on propositional truth that's inspired by the wisdom of God. It's inspired by the God of wisdom. It's a both-and proposition. That it's God's spirit or it's, it's the wisdom of God that has inspired the word of God that is knowable. No, notice what it says. It says that, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, this is something that can be known. It can be grasped. It can be understood. It can be thought through. It can be applied. It can be processed. And oftentimes what happens when people are struggling with decisions about what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, they're completely ignoring what is propositionally true right in front of them, right? We do this all the time. We are so good at ignoring what's the most obvious thing in front of us to do because we're so busy seeking what's these obscure things, you know, like, for example, what is God's will for my life? In some big, huge kind of idea. We, we, we put this big idea about God's will for my life out there as this massive mystery for us to figure out. When in reality, it is God's will that you love your neighbor. It's God's will that you meditate on His Word day and night. It's God's will that you evangelize the lost. I mean, there, there's things that are right in front of us that we are to do on an active daily basis that we can know and understand and apply to our lives. And, and wisdom is just that way. It's based upon propositional truth, something that can be known. There's a one answer. There's one answer for both of these questions or to both of these categories of folly, and that's turn. This is a strong word of repentance here, this, this Hebrew word for turn. It is a complete intellectual, psychological, emotional, and physical turning. The idea is a complete turning of your entire being toward wisdom. 
toward godliness. It's, it's really the, the essence of true repentance. It's not just changing your mind about a thing. It's actually completely changing your whole way of living, your whole way of seeing, your whole way of believing, your whole way of thinking about all matters of life. And that's what this call is to. Well, you'll notice, and this is where, <clears throat> this is where it starts to get a little bit offensive. So, you know, for those of you who are easily offended, you might want to kind of duck here. But wisdom turns on folly with severity, actually. In verses 24 to 27, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. So, all of a sudden now, it's wisdom itself that is becoming the one that scoffs at folly. It's wisdom itself that just by its very nature, and if you think about this, sort of try to put on your, your, sort of your philosophical hat for a second. If you think about it from a sort of a philosophical perspective, wisdom by its very nature is a mocker of folly, right? Just by being wisdom itself, it is by its very essence a mocker of all things foolish. So you don't necessarily need to attach any kind of like, oh, now I'm going to all of a sudden turn on you and I'm going to get aggressive as wisdom. And I'm gonna... No, it's the fact that wisdom itself, by its very nature of being transcendently truth, transcendently of God, is a mocker, a scoffer of folly. It's a rejecter by its very essence of folly, of foolishness. A commentator... Bruce Waltke says this, Wisdom rejoices in turning the present upside-down world right-side up. When wisdom overturns folly, righteousness ousts wickedness, knowledge overcomes ignorance, humility topples pride, and life swallows up death. Wisdom rejoices in that. Mm-hmm. And then, like what we're going through now, rejecting God. Sure. So it's cyclical. Yeah. So my question is, when's, when's this cycle going to end? And when you, when you find the answer to that, would you let all of us know? Uh, I don't, we won't be alive here. Relatively soon. <laughs> so so this is, this is a, a severe turn. This is a severe turn of language as well. There's this mocking, this scoffing, and, and that's, just, that's just very offensive to the modern mind, right? <clears throat> Unless you're a Christian. You, Christians can be mocked. Well, that, that's, that's, they, should be, they should be able to be mocked, because that's part and parcel of being a Christian. That's true, but what I'm saying is it's okay with the tolerant class 
the snowflakes. It's okay to mock Christianity. There's nothing wrong with doing Oh, yeah, right. That's, that's a morally acceptable thing to do. Correct, correct. But, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says that in his sort of, he, he, as he's describing, he's sort of drawing a, a, a bit of a sarcastic contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And he's calling the wisdom of this world, which is really foolishness, he's calling it wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The foolish things would be believers, followers of Christ, those who walk in truth. We're the foolish things of the world. And that God has chosen that the folly of following Christ would be of shame to the wise. So that's even implicit in what it means to walk in this world in Christ. There is a an actual intention on the part of God that that in and of itself would be of shame to the fool. And this is a similar proverbial version of that principle from 1 Corinthians. Well, you go on and you see here in verse 28 that the fool is not in control. The fool is not in control of any of this. In fact, wisdom is withheld. Wisdom holds itself back at a certain point. In other words, the fool can't persist in their folly with this manipulative mindset that, you know, at some point I'm going to turn and I'm going to try to be wise. At some point I'm going to you know, turn around and I'm going to try to start seeking wisdom. That's not how this whole thing works. That's not some kind of guarantee. That's not some type of control that the one who persists in folly has. It says in verse 28, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And of course, we see this throughout Scripture as well. The Old Testament God has said this before in, 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 in uh, Old Testament passages over and over again. In other words, the point is, is that you are not in control of this. The fool doesn't get to just decide. It's like, the, it's like the person who kind of is mapping out their life, and they're like, I just want to have fun and party and do my thing for a while, and then as I get older, I'm going I'm to maybe straighten things out. That is not how this works. And so wisdom, being personified here, says, fool, if you think that. In fact, wisdom is going to be disclosed from you, even if you beg for it you will continue to wallow in your folly because you're not in control. You're not in control. And then, as we've talked about before, and we'll see this theme repeated over and over again in Proverbs, folly basically has itself as its own consequence. Basically, the foolishness of the fool becomes its own consequence to the fool. Verses 29 to 31, because they hated knowledge... And did not choose the fear of the Lord, would not have, excuse me, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. This is essentially the law of sowing and reaping, right? This is the law of sowing and reaping you see in Galatians. A man sows, a man reaps what he sows. So for the person who persists in folly, whether it's the, the kind that just persists in immature, simple, gullible ways of thinking and living, or whether it's all the way full-on, all-out scoffing and mocking folly, 
that the consequences of that folly become their own the, 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 their own what they've what they've brought upon themselves. It's kind of a clunky way to say it, but it's kind of like Proverbs one. What what happens in Pro- we see in Proverbs one for those who reject God, even though they knew God, because He was made known to them by everything that was made, but they rejected God, and they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. So God just gives them up to their own way. Right? It's the same kind of idea here, and how their own devices bring them down. They'll eat the fruit of their own way, and it's not going to be a tasty fruit. It's not going to be a nourishing fruit, is the, is the implication here. Folly is its own consequence. And then, it's wrapped up in verses 32 to 33, very simply. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. This is a stark contrast to what is said before for the fool. Whereas the fool can expect not only the, the ridicule of wisdom, but it's the calamity that comes that's, that, that, the, that wisdom is, is laughing at. In verse 26, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and calamity comes, like a whirlwind. So you have these, these atmospheric sort of severe weather kind of metaphors being described to, to, to give us a picture of what comes upon the fool as consequence of their folly. And yet you have this stark contrast here at the conclusion for those who walk in wisdom, pursue wisdom, long for wisdom, receive reproof and counsel. It's that they dwell secure. They'll be at ease, and there's no dread of disaster. A total contrast between those two two pictures. Now, when you think about this, and you think about it in the life of the Christian, think about it in the context of your own life, and think about it in the context of the, the New Testament, when you see the life of Christians and what is laid out for them, uh, what they can expect, when you see these kinds of statements of dwelling securely, of being at ease, without dread of disaster, what's the right way to understand that? Or maybe a better way to put it is, what's the wrong way to understand that as a Christian? Right. What it means is like, like David, you can lay your head down on a pillow at night and go to sleep surrounded by armies and surrounded by, by terrors, but know that God is in control and that you rest in Him. That's right. It's like, it's like I mean, you see example after example all throughout Scripture of the faithful, God's people, who are walking through tumult, personal tragedy, anguish, personal suffering, outward persecution, and yet the constant promise, the repeated mantra, the, the, the consistent precept that is put before God's people is this promise of peace. Paul calls it a peace that passes all understanding. 
what kind of peace is that? It's the kind of peace that can, can be in the midst of swirling tumult all around them, maybe in the form of persecution, maybe in the form of personal trial, maybe in the form of some type of physical difficulty, whatever it might be, and yet their existence is characterized by dwelling secure, by being at ease, and not having dread of disaster. Yes? That's a, great, that's a great historical example there. Um, more recent history than you know, examples you could cite from Scripture. Phenomenal story there. A great testimony of that. Um, and when you think about this, you know, when, when, when we as Christians find ourselves succumbing to standards of, of what, cre- what produces in us peace that are worldly standards, Take heed. You are walking in folly. You're absolutely walking in folly. If your peace and if my peace, if your joy and my joy, if our sense of ease, if our lack or absence of dread of disaster becomes closely knit with the things of this world, things like reputation, things like financial stability, things like uh, you know entertainment, the things that kind of make me you know, enjoy myself, if, if those, those fundamental qualities of life in Christ can be disrupted by the absence of those worldly things, we are walking in folly. We are, we are, we are dancing at the doorstep of utter folly. Because the wise, those who are in Christ, are dwelling securely. They're at ease. There is no dread of disaster. They do have a peace that passes all understanding. And like the Apostle Paul, knowing the secret of contentment, whether in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's just that simple. And we know the life of the Apostle Paul. It was not a life of ease, right? So God help us to walk in wisdom, right? God help us to listen to the call of wisdom in the streets. Apply the principles of truth to our lives in the daily affairs, in the marketplace, in the community, and in our homes, that we might be a testimony of a life of peace and peaceableness in the midst of a, of a world that is turning in on itself in complete chaos and anxiety. What an opportunity for us as believers, just by virtue of our stability in Christ, to be this bright, shining light without even saying a word, just walking through the daily travails and hopes and opportunities of life in this world, in a fallen world, with stability and peace and trust in the Lord, that is a testimony in and of itself in the day and time that we live in. It's a 
great opportunity for us. Let's pray.